Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 119. And I don't know who was doing the pyramids, but you read my mind. Okay, because it is, what Sunday? Pentecost, but it's also the Lord's Supper. So in the church calendar, um, uh, we do white for the Lord's Supper, and one Sunday a year we do red for the Pente- for Pentecost. Red for the tongues of fire on the sec- second chapter of Acts. So we mix and match them today. All that to say is you were thinking it just like me, because what did I say in the choir? Yeah, they don't know. They don't know. <laughs> second. And I, I said, oh, I, I wanted to get both, but thank you. How about that? Okay. Psalm 119, verses 81 through 88. If you're able, would you stand with me as I prepare to read the Word of God? Heavenly Father, come upon us today as we open your Word, that these would not be just simply black and white words on a page, but they would be your Word, so that as we read them, your Holy Spirit will open our eyes, that we might know you know the grace that you have for us, know the sustaining power and care that you have for us, no matter what our circumstances, Lord, that our eyes, our minds, our hearts would be enlivened, that we might live these things out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 119, verses 81 through 88. My soul languishes for thy salvation. I wait for thy word. My eyes fail with longing for thy word. While I say, when will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget thy statutes. How many are the days of thy servant? When will thou execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth, but as for me... I did not forsake thy precepts. Revive me according to thy loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of my mouth. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Just as an aside in verse 83, I become like a wineskin in the smoke. A wineskin in the smoke. That's an interesting um, one because we don't usually have wineskins. In, in our day and age, if you want wine, it usually comes in a bottle or a cardboard box. Um, but it came in wineskins, and you could only use it once. That was all that you could use it, because you'd put the wine in a wineskin, and a wineskin was a skin, typically a goat skin, and they would seal it up, and, and it was elastic then. And you'd put the wine in, and it would ferment, and fermented wine goes, expands, and then you would drink out of the wineskin. Well, once it has expanded, that's, that's all it's good for, is one, one expansion. You can't use it again. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't put it, because as soon as it begins to ferment, it will burst it out. Well, not only is this a wineskin that has been used once, but it is a wineskin that has been in the smoke. So it is, in a sense, extra dry. Extra dry. So that's the image that the psalmist is giving to us. It's like, I am just dying here. Okay, I am all used up, and we'll see how this plays out in this psalm. But he's, he's saying to the Lord, it's, it's the best illustration he can. I'm like a wineskin in the smoke. I'm as dry as can be. Now, as we look at Christianity and 
how it has been marketed through the years, especially since uh, the 70s, I would say, the 70s, it's often been marketed, what, as something that you can find happiness in, you can find prosperity in, you can find health in, you can find it, and you come in and you become a Christian, life is what? Beaches and cream, it's smooth sailing. It has been marketed in certain places like that. And Christianity is full of joy, but joy is different than what? It's different than happiness, it's different than uh, health, it's different than uh, wealth, it's different than all those other things. Every believer is promised God's eternal presence, he is uh, assured of salvation, uh, that other promise, there might be a couple other promises, but I'm just hitting, the, in a sense, the, the three that came to me right away. God's presence, assurance of salvation, persecution. Ooh, well, let's sit, so we'll stick with the first two, because okay, we sure don't like the last one. We sure don't like it. Now, there are other promises throughout Scripture, but so often what we find is people confuse promises and principles. Promises and principles. And they are different in Scripture. And, and But so often we just read all the principles like there are promises well. Well, God says this. God says what in Proverbs? Raise up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they'll return to it. That's a principle. Okay, which is a little bit different than a promise. Because it was a promise, if it was a promise, it would what? It would come out. I mean, if God makes a promise, it is fulfilled. But there are principles. We raise our children in a certain way. Uh, it is not, and, and it is, I'm, I'm sad to say, it is not a guarantee of how they will turn out. We teach them what is right. We make it a conspiracy. At home, they hear this. At church, they hear this. We want to be at their neighbors, they hear this. Um, and sometimes they grow up and do what? Go and do their own thing. And we, we can't control them when they become adults and make those decisions, but the principle is there. And, and many of us have seen it with our children, with our friends, uh, with others, that they were raised in the church, they were raised, and this is what they were taught, and for this season of their life, they had nothing to do with it. In fact, maybe they, they, they spoke against it, they lived against it, and suddenly, in God's perfect timing, in the fullness of time, their eyes are open, and all of those things come back to their memory, all of those things come back, and their heart is changed by the Lord. It's not a guarantee, but it's a principle. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. Um, so often, what the problems that we have between promises and principles um, we often apply a promise to ourselves without considering the historic context in Scripture. The cultural context, the textual context. In some cases, promises were made to specific people for specific things, and they really can't be generalized beyond that individual in Scripture. Oftentimes, promises contain an if. Ooh, an if. And that if is obedience. If you are obedient, the Lord will do this. And we like that promise because that usually comes with the promise of blessing. But the flip side is true as well. If you are disobedient, you're going to face problems. And, and, and all we have to do is, is look at life and that confirms it. Um, if you, um, we'll go back to the guardrail. I remembered it today. The silver thing on the side of the road, the guardrail. If you go over the guardrail in your car, what are you going to do? You're going to crash. Okay? The guardrail is there to protect you. 
if you disobey the Lord, and if you say, if the Lord says, this is what is right, this is how you should live, um, this will keep you from harm, and you go, yeah, but it's, that's not as fun as this. And if you go and do this and are obedient to the Lord, there's really no guarantee of his protection. I mean, you're going to go out there and you're going to find uh, dangers and you're going to find diseases and you're going to find catastrophes. There's no guarantee that over here life will be peaches and cream, but the Lord will be over here. Okay. You go and do your own thing, you're going to pay the price for that. Now, let's turn over to Matthew chapter uh, 18, because this is one of those places that is often uh, applied incorrectly uh, when it comes to promises of the Lord, because you have to see the context. You can't just go and pick out a verse and go, man, this is gospel truth. It is gospel, but how is it applied? What is the context? What does the larger portion of scripture teach? We don't we're, we're good Presbyterians here. We don't go to Mark and, and suddenly what? Pull out a snake. Okay? Just because it says you can handle snakes, we don't pull out a snake. You have to understand the context of that. Okay? The context of that. Here's the context in Matthew chapter 18. We'll begin in uh, verse 15. So you get a good understanding of this. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to, do, to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take two or more, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So this context here is what? It's discipline. People's, so there's somebody in sin, and they're concerned about it. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Paul elaborates on this in 1 Corinthians 5 where someone is uh, having a relationship with his stepmother and Paul says, kick him out. Kick him out. Verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that you may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. The context is church discipline. The context is not two or three of us are going to get together over here and pray for something, and the Lord is going to be there. Of course the Lord is going to be there, but the context here is church discipline. Whatever you do according to God's word in this process, the Lord will oversee it, the Lord will guide you, and you will be wise in it. Man cannot force God's hand on anything. We cannot go and say, God, three of us have prayed for this. Now you got to do it. Ooh. And, and, and God, I'm sure God's like, what, where do you get this idea? That I have to do anything that you want. You say, well, we're two or three are gathered. There you are. No, that's discipline. That's church discipline. Okay? Now, when you pray according to God's will... Ah, see, there's the kicker. Not according to my will, but according to God's will, then it will be done. Then it will be done. Okay, so those are some of the differences there between promises and principles. It's not an exhaustive explanation, but you get the idea there because as we look through the things in Psalms, we need to, to understand that. Uh, and, and often we listen, yeah, uh, we, we, we limit 
a promise to our own understanding. Jeremiah chapter 29. It's a great verse. A great passage. I have plans to what? Prosper you and not to harm you. Now that doesn't count on Wednesday afternoon when you have done something stupid and got yourself into a pickle and go, well, Lord, your passage says that that you're going to prosper me. You're not going to harm me. Well, I'm paraphrasing the Lord's stupid head. You went and did this. You get what you deserve. So you can't just pull those out and claim them like he's going to prosper me even in the midst when I do something stupid. You might learn. The Lord in his providence may adjust society for some reason. But odds are, if you do something stupid, you're going to pay the consequence for it. Okay. Now, back to Psalm 119. With all this in mind, we have to understand that out of all the sections in Psalm 119, this is the most desperate and the most depressing of all the sections. And, and, and you're thinking, this is why I come to church. Because I want to hear the desperate and depressing. Okay, uh, But we have to understand, sometimes life is like that. And for some of us, we know that. Some of us have been in the desperate. Some of us have been in the depressing, where we look around and we go, I, I've been unjustly accused, I, I, I am in the pit, and I just can't seem to get out of it. Lord, what are you doing in my life? And the, the answer, I mean, the psalmist says, God, are you going to deliver me? And he says it three times. He says, when are you going to deliver me? Verse 82. Verse 84. When are you going to do this? How long do I have to endure this? Verse 84. When are you going to judge those who are persecuting me unjustly? And you know what the Lord's response is? No, not yet. Not yet. What do you mean not yet, Lord? I'm praying to you. I'm looking to you, and you're telling me not yet. Don't you see I'm language? Don't you see I'm suffering here? Don't you see I'm in the pit? He says, not yet. I'm going to get to you. I haven't abandoned you, but it's not yet. Like Job, the psalmist can think of no justification for the circumstances that have been placed upon him. He's been faithful and, but those who have no respect for the Lord, no respect for his word, are persecuting him, are lying about him, are oppressing him. And he's going, Lord, are you paying attention to me? Get me out of here. And the Lord says, not yet. Not yet. There's an old Scottish commentator, and he is his view of, of these eight verses. He says, in the first four verses... We see how deep the persecuted servant of God may draw in his affliction before God comforts him. God sometimes allows us not to get just to hear, but sometimes to hear. And, and uh, right about here we're going, I'm dying here. And, and the Lord says, a little bit more, a little bit more. Why? For my purposes, for my purposes. He says, the first four we see how deep... Um, the, the, the believer might get in affliction before God comforts him. And in the last four verses, we see how the believer should behave himself in these circumstances. How should we conduct ourselves when we are being, when we're suffering, when we're being persecuted unjustly, when the Lord has said, not yet to us? Do we, are we mad at the Lord? Are we upset with the Lord? Or are we, well... I hate to say this, Lord, but you know better than I do. Oh, that's submission to the Lord. 
waiting on his timing, trusting in his providence. It's one of the secrets of the Christian life. It's not an easy secret to understand. It's not an easy secret to live with. But it's one of the secrets of the Christian life. How do I do it? And we have four things that are laid out for us in this psalm that are going to help us understand it. So the first one, verse 81. My soul languishes for thy salvation. I wait for thy word. What the psalmist wants is that the, is the deliverance that God has for him. Not the deliverance that he could achieve by the means of the world around him. Now imagine that if there was uh, some way we could go back and, and talk to the psalmist and, and um, he said, you know, all these things are happening, they're terrible. And we went to him and said, I can get you out of it if you're willing to lie, steal, and cheat. What would the psalmist say? No. I don't like it. I'm here, but I'm going to wait on God's deliverance. I'm going to wait on God's deliverance, not the deliverance of man. This is one of the great aspects of submission to God. You reach the point in your life where it's hard. It is so hard. It is so difficult. It is so painful. You might think in your mind, I am willing to do anything to escape these circumstances. Anything that you have to get do to get rid of these, these, this oppression, these hard places in your life. But unfortunately, anything might take you, what, out of the frying pan and into the fire if it's man's way. If it's not God's deliverance, I mean, if God's going to deliver you, he will do it in the way he wants, in the time he wants. But if you jump on man's deliverance, it might be worse for you. The psalmist is saying, Lord, what my soul longs for is not just deliverance, but it is your deliverance. According to what? Your word. The way that you say you're going to do it. So second, if we're to submit ourselves to God in afflictions, and trials and persecutions, we have to hope in one thing, and that is what we find here in his word. Again, verse 81, the second half, I wait for your word. My soul longs for your salvation. I wait for your word. And, and you can see the contrast here. Look at verse uh, 85. The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law, not in accord with your word. They don't care anything about your word lord and here i am i'm waiting for deliverance i'm waiting for your words to, to shine upon me that i may walk in your path and the people who are doing bad to me don't care anything about your word how is this possible how is this possible they persecute me look at verse 86 all thy commandments are faithful they have persecuted me with what with a lie and he says help me and the lord says not yet not yet it's like when's christ going to return well soon not yet. God's word is true and sure and faithful. And we must take our flag and we must put it up and say, I'm going to wait for the deliverance of the Lord. I'm going to wait for the deliverance of the Lord. Now, there, there's an old uh, uh, practice that sailing captains used to uh, adhere to. And let me tell you the context of this. It was called nailing your flag to the mast. Now, it originated in England, and it's generally said was coined uh, on the ship the Venerable at the Battle of Camperdown. The Battle of Camperdown, which was a naval engagement between the English and the Dutch in 1797. 
The English fleet was led by the Venerable. It was the flagship. And Admiral Duncan was, was in command. And the battle wasn't going well. And in fact, the Dutch came and they fired a volley and knocked out the main mast of the Venerable. And on the main mast was the flag. And typically in that day, when you wanted to surrender, you brought your flag down. You gave up. You brought your flag down. Well, the rest of the fleet kind of looked over at the Venerable, and they didn't see the flag. They didn't see the flag. So this was uh, this, the, everything hung in the balance here. But a young seaman, and subsequently he became a national hero for doing this, Jack Crawford, climbed up what was left of the mast with the flag, and he nailed the flag to the mast. And the rest of the fleet saw that the flag was up there, and the battle turned, and the English won the Battle of Camperdown. Uh, and that's where we get the idea of nailing your flag to the mast. I'm not going to bring it down. I'm not going to surrender. I'm going to nail my flag to the mast, and it's the mast of God's word. This is what I'm going to hope in. This is what I'm going to depend upon. I'm not going to hope and depend upon anything else, Lord, but you and you alone. Because if we're going to submit ourselves to God in affliction and trial and persecution, our flag has to be nailed to him and no place else. Because the wisdom of the world will not sustain us in those moments so third look at verse 82 my eyes fail with longing for thy word while i say when will you comfort me my soul is fixed basically upon one thing and that is the promise of god he's trusting in the promise of god now if you look through scripture there are a lot of promises that the lord makes in scripture to various people and we looked at the difference between promises and principles before and charles spurgeon has a little book and if it's not hard to find you can find it it's called the checkbook of the bank of faith the checkbook of the bank of faith it's it's a great little book and it's full of what he says full of provisions that our relationship to jesus entitles us to realize on a daily basis Okay, if I'm going to walk in faith, Spurgeon has written this little book, and he said, here are the things that you can count on in your daily life from the Lord. He explains that we have to present the promises of God in prayer and faith, anticipating that he will honor them. And we've talked about this before. It's praying God's promises back to him. If he says, what, I will never leave you or forsake you, what can we pray? Lord, don't leave me or forsake me. That's a promise from the Lord. Now, what else should we pray in the midst of that? Because God's promises, you belong to me. There you are. You're in the hand. You're never going to leave you or forsake you. Our promise should also be, Lord, help me see where you are in this. Help me understand that I'm being held in your hand. Give me the, the clear insight that I need that I don't think I'm out on my own because you have promised never to leave me or forsake me. Help me understand that. Give me the eyes to see what you are doing in my life here. So Spurgeon elaborates on this in relation to this portion of the song. He says, David in his troubles knew where to turn for consolation. And that is no small piece of wisdom. When a man is ill, he may not know to which physician he had better send. But if he knows one who has had much experience with the disease from which he is suffering, he sends for him at once, as a wise patient will do. Will you still go to a broken cistern that can hold no water? 
When will you give up running to your neighbors and going to your brother's house in the day of your adversity? You will do far better if you go to your father's house and to your elder brother, Christ Jesus. Go not round about and beat the bush in the hope of getting at God through second causes, but go to the great fountainhead of all consolation at once. Go right to the throne of grace. These are the promises God makes to us. Pray them back to him. David knew that the best place for a true believer to find consolation was in God's word. So he didn't look to the things of man. He did not immediately find the comfort that he sought, though. Because God told him what? Not yet. Have you heard that from the Lord at some point in your life? Not yet. Whoa. When? Because that's usually our answer. When, Lord? When? This is not yet. Not yet. But David continues to look for the answer with expectancy, with desire, with eyes that search the Lord for the answer. Last, how do you submit yourself to God in affliction and in trial? Verse 88, revive me according to your loving kindness. Your loving kindness. It's, that's what gives me life. He is saying, Lord, you know, your loving kindness is better than anything else in the world. That loving kindness is that mercy. It is that love that that only the Lord has, that we can find only there in his presence. It is a love of gentleness and caring in our life. C.S. Lewis said that nine-tenths of happiness of the happiness of life is the experience of affection. Nine-tenths of the happiness of life is the experience of affection. And, and I had to think about that for a minute. And it's, it's happiness, it, people loving us. People caring for us, going to the right people who, who understand us and who can speak to us and who can love us. And there's nothing in this world that compares to what? The loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. So, in a sense, we understand this as a spiritual truth. What are we saying? Nothing I desire compares with you. Okay? No, nothing in this world that we should desire can compare with what? The loving kindness that the Lord has promised us, has promised us. Now, you, you graduates, I want you to understand, the world's going to promise you a lot. And the world is standing out there saying, come and drink your fill from all that we have to offer you and experience all of life because it is going to be great. I mean, you're going to get to... Um, um, I don't know where you're going to school, Alabama or Auburn or, heaven forbid, Tennessee. And, 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 and they're going to tell you this is what you need to do because what? This is what everybody's doing. This is the wisdom of the world, and you need to experience these things. And I, I'll tell you what, if you drink your fill of the world, the world's going to own you, and the world's going to have a hold on you. We, parents, grandparents, Members of the church, influencers in their lives, have to show them and live before them and tell them that there is nothing like the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. Nothing I desire compares with you. Nothing. In your steadfast love, Lord, in your loving kindness, that's life. 
that is life. But that doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. doesn't mean it's going to be smooth. doesn't mean we can't go out and market Christianity like it's going to be peaches and cream. You can't do that. Now, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't, I encourage you to do so from John Bunyan. Go get the modern English translation. Don't read the original because you'll never get through it. Okay, Read the modern English version. He tells of Christian, who is the main character, walking through on his way to the celestial city, and he hooks up with different people on the path, on the king's highway, on, on the way to the celestial city, which is heaven. And here he is walking along with another believer called Hopeful. Hopeful. Moving on, they find that the holy way, that's the king's highway, runs along a riverbank for a time, but then it veers off onto a rough ground, which is very hard, very sore on their feet. And they are much discouraged until they come to another meadow called Bypass Meadow. They thought it would be much smoother walking on the road to the celestial city. And Christian tried to reassure his companion that the path ran right alongside the path that they had been told to stay on. No doubt that they thought they could keep so close to the king's highway that they would be able to see whenever their path began to turn away from the right road. Then they would just jump over the fence, get back onto the right way once again. They felt sure it would be all right, at least Christian did, but Hopeful was doubtful all the time, though he gave way to his older companion. But when giant despair found them sleeping on his grounds, charging them with trespassing, he dragged them into his stronghold called Doubting Castle and throws them into a nasty, stinking dungeon. And here they lie for four days without one bit of bread or a drop of drink or light. Giant despair arrived in the morning with a great crab tree cudgel and beat them. And when the day after, and, and when the day after he counseled them to just destroy themselves and left them lying day after day, pining in their filthy prison. It is then they begin to pray and continue almost until daybreak. And suddenly Christian cries out, What a fool I am, thus to lie in a stinking junk dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called the promise. The promise that will open any lock in Doubting Castle. Running with desperate speed, Christian and Hopeful finally find the steps by which they may exit the bypath meadow and climb over it back onto the king's highway. See, it was at this point that they understood that smooth walking is not always safe walking. And it is best to walk on the right road, even though it might be the roughest road. That's what the psalmist is saying, Lord, this is a rough road. My feet hurt. Everything is bad, but this is the road I'm on because only you can deliver me from it. The path to heaven is what? Straight and narrow. But no matter how rough going, it must be followed. There's no easy bypass, Bunyan writes, as Christian and hopeful discover in seeking to favor their sore feet. It was a carnal self-indulgence. That leads them almost to death, not once, but several times. It says, therefore, let us be careful where we walk. For we may lose our comfort very speedily unless we keep strictly to the path of obedience to our Lord. Let us at all times, in all circumstances, 
We wear the yoke of Christ. We wear his promises on us. We follow his promises for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That's where we need to be. So let's pray. Lord, you've given us this example of a psalmist who's he's in dire straits. Lord, this is, this is as low as the psalm goes, but yet he, he doesn't seek another way out. He seeks only you. He doesn't ask for you to bring out anything except what you have for him. And he cries out to you, but your response is not yet. Soon. Not yet. And Lord, we, many of us have been there too. Some, some people may be there at this moment, crying out to you and saying, Lord, I'm being persecuted, I'm in trial, I'm in a tough way, it's not of my own making. When will you deliver me? Because I don't want the deliverance of the world, which may cause me to compromise what I believe, might cause me to veer off the path, the king's highway. I want your deliverance. I want your loving kindness. And I want your mercy. Sustain us, Lord. Until the time when you say the waiting is over, deliverance is here. We ask this in Christ's name.